0: Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in this episode, I am going to explore a subject that I've been wanting to explore for quite a long time. And that is some of the early history of baseball in Michigan during the 1800s. So I'm going to be citing a few different references in today's journey through history. So come along and join me. I think I have found a collection of some fascinating stories for you. So there's a book written by a man named Peter Morris. And if you ever get a chance to get a copy of this, particularly if you are a baseball fan and a fan of history, it's a fun read, and I have been enjoying exploring this book for the past month now and it's called Baseball Fever Early Baseball in Michigan and it was written by Peter Morris as I mentioned earlier and I'm just going to read you some of the introduction of this book and then I'm going to tell you the story of a baseball player that had most of his career based out of Albion Michigan even though he played for a lot of different teams Albion was his hometown here in southwest Michigan Now, he explains that there was a judge by the name of Melville McGee, who was a prominent judge in Jackson, Michigan. And he reminisced in 1892 about the so-called Raisin Games of his boyhood years in rural Concord, Michigan. Now, he didn't specify any dates of when these games occurred, but McGee was born in 1828. So these games must have occurred somewhere in the late 1830s or 1840s. And these games, when they were played, were called Baseball. Not Baseball combined, it was Baseball. McGee recalled that the raising of a framed house or barn was an event that called together the entire neighborhood. And it was very seldom that anyone invited to assist on such an occasion... Failed to be present. The event was looked forward to by the boys of the neighborhood with great satisfaction, as it gave them a half holiday from the labors of the farm and enabled them to enjoy a game of baseball after the building had been raised. Thus, you get the name Raisin Games. They were at the barn raisings or the house raisings. After the work was done, all who participated joined in a hearty meal. Then the next thing in order was to select a good place and two of the young men chose sides and they played baseball until it was time to go home to do their several different chores at the different houses. It seemed to me, now that I look back and recall those early days, that the young people enjoyed their sport and games and entered into them with far more zest than young people do in present day said Melville McGee. There was no feeling of envy or superiority or the feeling that you don't belong in my set. All were on a level and every one was just as good as any other. Now the author Peter Morris Reflects on the nostalgia that's common from Judge McGee on reminiscence of those who played baseball in the early days before it became a profession. However, there were paid baseball players as early as 1860. So he states in his introduction that most instances, the people that are saying these kinds of comments are articulating the unpleasant shock of recognizing that the same game they played for fun as children can provide a livelihood for a select few, but not for them. So it might be a bit of envy in that kind of a statement, is the way he looks at it. But it's just an interesting insight into how some of the early games were formulated in in Michigan during the pioneer period, when people would come over to raise a barn or raise a house, and then they would play baseball. And this was somewhere in the 1840s, based on the judge's age. Now, there are accounts of people playing baseball in the Philadelphia area and over near Greenwich Village as early as 1823 in the New York area. And during the pioneer period around 1840 to 1850, roads started to be put in between communities in larger quantities around Michigan. And so it was more possible to travel between towns and, of course, the farther west that you went, the roads as they became more developed 1840 to 1850, it was possible to start having games and playing baseball games between different towns. The expansion of the sport probably took on a greater scale when the railroads went in later on, as late as 1870. And the game was quite different way back in the day. Um, The scores were tremendously high. They had different rules about strikes, and there was no balls. And it's just very different from the game that is played today. Everything from Little League to uh, college baseball to professional baseball has a more standardized set of rules that are quite different from what they were in the early days of the sport when it was just a pioneer game. And this is explained in a lot of detail in Peter Morris's book. But now I want to focus on a story about a man that I came across when I was doing research on Riverside Cemetery in Albion, Michigan. And his name was James Thomas McGuire. Now, he was born in November of 1863 in Youngstown, Ohio. And during the Civil War, McGuire grew up in Cleveland. And then he later moved as a young man to Albion, Michigan. But it was on the streets of Cleveland that, as a young boy, he played on the lots of that city and learned the game of baseball. And at the age of 18, he was playing for the Woodlands team In the Cleveland area, and as a young man, when he moved to Albion, Michigan, he worked as an apprentice in an iron foundry in Albion, and he played baseball on the weekends. Now, McGuire first gained note in the sport by playing baseball for a team in Hastings, Michigan, where he was paired with the pitcher by the name of Lady Baldwin. Now, Charles Lady Baldwin was an American left-handed pitcher who played six seasons in the Major League Baseball with the Milwaukee Brewers from 1884, the Detroit Wolverines from 1885 to 1888, the Brooklyn Bridegrooms in 1890, and the Buffalo Bisons in 1890. He had a very strong arm, and he was described as having an incendiary fastball and a sinuous curve, or so-called snakeball. And Maguire was a catcher, and he was reputed to be the only catcher within the 50-mile radius who could handle the left-handed pitching of Lady Baldwin. And at age 19, Maguire began his professional career in 1883 with a Terre Haute Indiana club called the Terre Haute Awkwardz. And it was in the minor leagues, but he became a professional player because he was paid to play. Now, McGuire made his major league debut in June of 1884 with the Toledo Blue Stockings of the American Association. He hit 185 in 151 at-bats and appeared in 45 games. At Toledo, he shared the catching responsibilities with Moses Fleetwood Walker, Now, Moses Fleetwood Walker was an American baseball player who was also a catcher, and he's historically has been credited with being the very first black man to play in Major League Baseball. He was a native of Mount Pleasant, Ohio, and he was a star athlete at Oberlin College, as well as the University of Michigan. And so he was playing as a catcher in 1884 with the Toledo Blue Stockings, and he was in rotation with McGuire. And so he was the first African-American player in Major League Baseball. Now, McGuire and Walker each caught 41 games for the Blue Stockings, and the Blue Stockings finished in eighth place that year out of 13 teams with a 46-58 record, and the team folded after the 1884 season. Now, this was Moses Fleetwood Walker's only year in the big leagues because the following year the color barrier in the sport was introduced that would last for 63 years until it was eventually broken by Jackie Robinson with the Brooklyn Dodgers. So, McGuire would begin his 1885 season playing for the Indianapolis Hoosiers. Of the newly formed Western League, McGuire appeared in 16 games with the Hoosiers, and they were a dominant team in the Western League, compiling an 880 winning percentage. But in mid-June 1885, the Western League disbanded, and a mad rush developed to sign the players on the Indianapolis roster, a lineup that included McGuire and many other notable players of the time. So after the team disbanded, Detroit sent two representatives to Indianapolis principally to sign only two of the players, Larry McKeon and Jim Keenan, but they were outbid by the Cincinnati Reds. And the team in Detroit at that time was the Detroit Wolverines, but they were successful in signing the manager of the Indianapolis team as well as the rest of the starting lineup, which included James Thomas McGuire as the catcher. Now, the only catch about this signing was that there was a 10-day waiting period, which would allow other teams to come and approach the players and outbid Detroit. So the two representatives from Detroit sent the players to Detroit and quartered them in a hotel there. The next morning, they told the players that they had arranged for a fishing trip for them. So the players were, hey, this is great. And they boarded the steamship Annette and enjoyed the first day and night successfully fishing. But after three days, the players became a little suspicious. They weren't going back to shore. They weren't going back to Detroit. They were still at sea there out on the Great Lakes. And uh, the ship captain laughed and, and when they asked him when they would be returning to Detroit. As the players became more mutinous on the sixth day, the captain admitted that he'd been ordered to keep them out at sea for 10 days. In another account of of this adventure, um, one of the team members wrote about it. He said, we were prisoners, but well cared for prisoners. Anything in the line of creature comforts that you could find was packed away in ice. We lived on the best in the market and spent the rest of the time in fishing and playing poker. And they were very thoughtful with everything that they provided. On the night of the 10th day at midnight, they were taken ashore where they were all met by the two men from the Detroit team. And they were all signed to their contracts. So that's a little interesting side story about some of the history and experiences of uh, James... Thomas McGuire and the other players from that Indianapolis team. I don't think they could get away with that kind of shenanigans today. Now, James Thomas Maguire would remain a professional baseball player in the 19th and early 20th century, and he played for 26 years. And his baseball career, although quite nomadic, playing around in different cities, he always returned to Albion in the offseason. It was interwoven into his fabric as the place that he felt most comfortable returning to. He would earn the name Deacon and was often referred to as Deacon Jim based on his gentlemanly and fair play approach to the game. He also avoided drinking and smoking like the other players did. It was widely reported that he'd never been put out of the game or fined. He was a steady player in his performance and his temperament, um, with some of the greatest baseball years taking place with terrible teams that he played on. Now, he was not flamboyant, but instead he was very hardworking. He was very much appreciated by his hometown in Albion, Michigan. But he was also considered the most notable catcher in the era, especially when he set a major league record for catching. In every inning of 132 games with the Washington Nationals in 1895. He played one of the most difficult positions in baseball at that time when there was not a lot of protection for that player. His position was a catcher, you know, and there was a lot more protection today for the catcher with guards over their faces and, um, catcher's mask and even all the special uh, helmets and chest protectors and shin guards and all of that and the thick gloves. But in his time playing the game, none of those things had been developed or were in use. So over the years, he endured aches and pains and many injuries, including breaking every finger in both hands, which served to cement his legacy of resilience and his fortitude over the then-unheard-of 26 seasons of play. He was often referred to as one of the most durable catchers in the game. There's a story that he would put beefsteak into his fingerless glove to help protect his already gnarled hands from the velocity of a well-known pitcher of the era by the name of Hank O'Day. A 1906 image of an x-ray was taken of his hands and it still survives today, and I actually showed that in a video that I created on Riverside Cemetery, and it showed extensive damage to his knuckles and fingers in his hands. I'll put the link to that video in the description of this podcast episode if you're interested in watching it. So in his career, he set catching marks for defensive games, put-outs, assists, caught stealing, and stolen bases against The last three of these marks still stand as records today in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Over his early career, following his debut with the Blue Stockings, he would bounce back and forth between minor leagues and the majors. But he played for several teams over the years, including the Detroit Tigers in 1903 and in 1912. In later years, he served as a player coach. Some of the other teams that he played for besides the Toledo Blue Stockings and the Detroit Wolverines was the Philadelphia Quakers. He also played for the Cleveland Blues in 1888, the Rochester Broncos in 1890, and his time with the Washington Statesmen and Senators from 1891 to 1899. He was with the Brooklyn Superbas in 1899. And, of course, I mentioned the Detroit Tigers earlier from 1902 to 1903. He was with the New York Highlanders from 1904 to 1907. And then he was with the Boston Americans slash Boston Red Sox between 1907 to 1908. And then the Cleveland Naps in 1908 and 1910. And then he returned to the Detroit Tigers in 1912. He was a manager of the Washington Senators in 1898, and he was also a manager during his time in Boston, as well as with the Cleveland Naps in 1909 to 1911. And his Major League Baseball record was 1,459 runners caught stealing. And he also has another Major League Baseball record of 1,860 assists by a catcher his batting average was 278 he had 1,748 hits 45 home runs and he had 840 RBIs runs batted in he managed 516 games in his time and his managerial record was 210 wins to 287 losses. His winning percentage was 42%. And I know everybody out there is not entirely into baseball statistics and. Perhaps not everybody understands all of those things if you're not familiar with the game, but it is hard to talk about a player and the history of a sport like baseball without mentioning some statistics because in baseball, they tend to count everything, and they keep track of everything, and they've done that for a very, very long time. So Deacon James Thomas McGuire passed away in October 1936, actually on Halloween, following several years of illness and a stroke, and finally he succumbed to pneumonia. He was survived by his wife, May, and he had a brother, George, and he had no children in his lifetime. He was considered the most consistent and leading catcher in the era, and he was also referred to as the most durable. Today, his headstone at Riverside Cemetery is kind of interesting to look at. If you look very closely, the first time I looked at it, it looked like this little X that was on his headstone, but I looked closer, and it's actually crossed bats were etched into his headstone which is a nice tie-in to his baseball legacy. And, of course, he's buried in Albion. And there's an interesting note that after Maguire's success and his endurance in the field as a catcher and some of the things that he did by putting a raw stake to absorb the shock, this actually made the manufacturers of catcher's gloves take a hint And they began to pad the catcher's mitts with felt and hair, which dramatically changed the longevity of future catchers. So you might say that some of his actions, while his many years as a catcher, actually changed the sport for the better. There was an article written by H.G. Salsinger in 1936 where he states that, modern catchers should erect a monument to repay the debt owed to McGuire's innovation. And that's largely due to the fact that he was playing in a day when there was no padding in catcher's gloves, and he was catching some of the hardest thrown pitches in baseball at the time. And his only innovation that he could come up with was to put a round stake inside his glove, which helped ease some of the impact of the baseball and even mcguire's wife was later interviewed and she would recall that he would use a piece of beefsteak in the glove and at the end of the game it was hamburger so you can imagine what that was doing to his hand during those years but the man's endurance was incredible and um, it's quite fascinating you can actually google and look at mcguire's gnarled knotted hand they have the x-rays up there that were taken in 1906 and it is quite something to look at it's kind of like looking at an old oak tree with gnarled joints and an interesting story that came out late in life because of mcguire's celebrity status i i assume in the realm of baseball in 1914 a man who was believed to have gone insane attempted twice to kill mcguire His first attempt was at his cabin that he had at Duck Lake, Michigan, and he attacked him with an axe and a revolver. And the second attempt was at McGuire's home in Albion using a repeating rifle. And McGuire was reported to have narrowly escaped death in both instances. So hopefully someone caught the guy or locked him up after that incident. But uh, yeah, that's an interesting side note from... A Forgotten Story in History in Albion, Michigan. And I find it fascinating to hear the stories of some of these uh, early pioneer baseball players. And it's kind of nice to hear one from southwest Michigan and hear his story that was so unique and unto itself. And he was such a pioneer in the sport, such a successful, enduring player in that game. And it's also interesting to read the accounts by Peter Morris in his book Baseball Fever and I highly recommend you get a copy of that and check it out and I'll try to include some more baseball stories later on. I had just wanted to include at least one story about some pioneer history of baseball in southwest Michigan as well as the story of James Thomas Maguire, also known as Deacon McGuire. So that's going to conclude today's journey through history. If you like today's episode, please take some time to leave a review on whatever app that you are listening on. I know a lot of my audience out there is using Spotify, there's a large percentage out there using the Apple podcast app and I have several followers on Google Podcasts as well as Stitcher and there's a few other uh, smaller apps out there that people are listening on. So not all of them have the opportunity to leave a review. But if they do, check it out and uh, uh, throw me a few kind words if you could. It always helps to get more listeners in the long term. And I really enjoy having a large fan base of people that just enjoy good stories about local and regional history. And that's what Tales of Southwest Michigan Past is all about. And I try to keep the stories diverse as possible to give you a slice of history from a lot of different corners of the pie and as always if you would like to reach out to me you can find me at michaeldelaware.com i'm always happy to hear from my listeners you can also support the podcast on that same website up in the top title bar and there's a couple of different ways to do that certainly check that out And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.